This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Since Columbine 20 years ago, lockdown drills have become part of students' realities, a lesson in how to respond if your school is under attack. But do they actually work? Do they cause undue trauma? Today we continue our special series and podcast since Columbine. CPR's Nathaniel Miner and Andrea Dukakis report. Megan Storm wasn't even born in 1999, but what happened at Columbine High School affects her anyway. Like a few months ago, Megan expected to have a normal, or just slightly better than normal, day. She was home outside Orlando. Um, I woke up and I went to school, and it was, it was a nice day. <laughs> Megan's dad, David Storm, tried to make it a special day. Her mother and I had bought balloons for her to be delivered at the school. It was Megan's 16th birthday. Yeah, it was my 16th birthday. It wasn't anything spectacular, but like I was just going to go home and like eat cake and open presents and stuff. She went to classes at Lake Brantley High School. Her fourth period was AP Music Theory. And someone came on the announcements and he told us that there was a code red and he said, this is not a drill. And so we all walked into the locker room and hid behind a locker. The teacher followed the school's procedures and turned out the lights. It was just really quiet, and we all huddled together. In other classes, I heard that some people were, like, texting their family or um, crying and stuff. Then Megan heard some noises. There were loud thuds and bangs and... Yeah, that that did sound like gunshots or people knocking on the door. Then after the announcement, I was pretty convinced that since I was in the room that was closest to the entrance of the school, that we were going to be first. Megan was pretty sure this was it. Uh, I thought I was going to die. And I don't know, for some reason I thought I should call the police, but I like that wouldn't have helped anything. And then another announcement. He told us that it had been a drill. And um, then class just sort of resumed. Turns out the sounds Megan heard were just construction. She went home at the end of the day, but she couldn't just move on. She got off the bus and just immediately broke down and told this tale of thinking it was the end. Megan and some of her friends didn't go back to school the next day. I was, like, scared that something was going to happen now, probably more than I was before. You know, we hand over the safeguard and caregiving of our, the most precious people in our lives to the schools, and they have to honor that. And uh, in this day, it was a real failure. David Storm says since then, the school and the local sheriff's department have tried to learn lessons from the drill to make sure they're now done in a way that doesn't cause unnecessary trauma. In the 20 years since Columbine, schools have changed a lot. Locked doors, metal detectors, bulletproof glass, and lockdown drills. And it's largely up to state and local governments to decide what kind of drills they want to do. Not every school drill goes as badly as the one Megan Storm experienced. But some parents, like her dad David, worry drills do more harm than good. 
Most kids in America will never be shot at in school. So some parents wonder, why are we traumatizing them for something that probably won't happen? And there's another problem. We don't really know if they even work, if they even help save lives in the event of a real attack. This is Since Columbine, a podcast from Colorado Public Radio about how one shooting 20 years ago changed America. In this episode, active shooter drills. We go from Florida to Colorado to upstate New York to try to answer the big question. Does practice make perfect when it comes to school safety? get things started. Can you hear me back there? Okay? Right now, we're going to take you to what used to be an elementary school in suburban Denver. It's now a training center. Dozens of school administrators from around the country are here to learn about school security. They're listening to John Michael Keyes. I'm going to start by saying howdy. It is an honor and privilege to be here today, and thank you all. For the issue is the personal for Keyes. His daughter was killed in a school shooting outside of Denver in 2006. He named this organization after one of the last text messages he got from her. Emily sent this message back. I love you guys. The I Love You Guys Foundation started in the years after Emily's death, when Keyes quit his job as a software engineer. I woke up one day and said, what am I doing? This has no meaning. Keyes wanted to come up with a new school safety program, but there were already several out there. There's avoid, deny, defend. Under that system, students should run, basically do anything they can to get away from the attacker. Or Alice, which trains students to actually attack a gunman if necessary. And so I ask Keyes, why try to rewrite the rules? The question reveals the answer in the sense there was all of this stuff. And uh, uh, shared language between students, staff, and first responders didn't exist. Under his system, teachers and students get very specific directions. So in a lockdown drill, kids are told locks, lights, out of sight. That is, lock the classroom doors, turn out lights, get out of sight. And the school administrators are here for two days of instruction and motivational stories from people like A.J. DeAndrea from the Arvada Police Department. If it happens, if it's your given day, I want you to dig deep and know that you're prepared and do your part so that you can save lives. Ian Wolf is in the audience. He works for Oklahoma City Public Schools, and he's responsible for the safety of tens of thousands of students in his district. He says it's tough deciding which program to go with. There are a lot of companies that want to sell you an answer to all your problems. You know, they they come to you with this package and say, if you buy this, it will fix everything. John Michael Key's program, the Standard Response Protocol, it's free. They just charge for these trainings. But I ask Wolf, how do you know the program actually works? Does it really help keep kids safe? Unfortunately, a lot of the evidence is anecdotal. Uh, And so there's not a lot of hard data to go off of. This is where a lot of news stories about school safety drills end. We don't really know if they work or not. The organizations behind these programs and some school districts, they have done some research. But as far as academic peer-reviewed data, it doesn't exist. So we tried to find out if anyone was doing something. We went to upstate New York, and we followed a researcher who's leading an effort to try to fill that void. Right there. And, okay, we got three floors, right? 
Okay. Where's the most classrooms, first or second? Okay. All right. Everybody good? It's go time for Jacqueline Schildkraut and her crew. We're at a school in Syracuse. She's an associate professor of criminal justice at State University of New York, Oswego. The school district here wanted to improve how it practiced drills. At the same time, Schildkraut was looking for a district to study. So they got together. She's done these drills at about 30 schools here. We tag along with her to two of them. And we saw that training little kids is a lot different than high schoolers. And as we wait for the first drill, I have this weird feeling. It's just a drill, but I feel pressure and tension, like I'm sort of stressed. I think that's because the kids are expecting a normal day, but we know they're about to get a big surprise. And the principal is certainly not expecting Schildkraut when she walks into his office and asks him to put the school on lockdown. Can you read that right now, please? Hi, it's Mr. When are we doing this? Right now. Right this second? Right this second. All righty. Did I miss something? Nope. All right. Okay. This is a lockdown drill. Lock, light, out of sight. This is a drill. Lockdown drill. Lock, light, out of sight. The kids and the teachers know the drill. In just a few seconds, they disappear. Doors close and lights go out. Shilkraut walks down a hallway with a clipboard and stops at a classroom door. No one is supposed to come and open the door. The kids and the teacher have locked themselves in. Shilkraut waits a few beats and then uses a master key. It's dark. The kids and teacher are hiding. I can't see a thing. You guys are all set. Go ahead and remain in lockdown until you hear the all clear. Thank you. What you have just participated in was a lockdown drill. This drill is to help you be prepared. So, I mean, the drill ended, and honestly, I was really surprised at how smoothly it went. I mean, everyone seemed pretty calm about the whole thing. Nate, no offense, but you don't have kids. These little kids were waiting in the dark for a long time, and it upset me to see them huddled in a classroom. And what surprised me was how real it felt. It felt real, but... It wasn't real, and the kids knew that. I mean, think about the drill we heard about from Megan Storm in Florida. This was nothing like that. That's true. Other drills we found out have the sounds of gunfire, they have smoke, and it really can traumatize the kids. Shilkraut decided not to do those. We don't bring in law enforcement. We don't bring in ammunition or simulation ammunition or anything like that. You know, our goal is to see that they know what to do. And and we don't necessarily think that causing them that sort of extra anxiety at this point is the way to go. On our way to the high school, Shilkraut worries the kids won't take the drills seriously. I did a training last week where I'm literally like, I need you guys to be quiet because I would like you to go home in one piece and not in a body bag. And they thought that was funny. Because it's certainly not funny for Shellkraut. She grew up near Parkland, Florida. Her brother went to Stoneman Douglas High School. The Virginia Tech massacre in 2007 pushed her to get back into school and pursue criminology. She even wrote a book about Columbine's legacy. I've, you know, made a lot of connections to survivors of various shootings, whether it was Columbine, Aurora, um, you know, and others. And when it becomes your own community, it becomes very, very personal. And that's why she ends up getting pretty frustrated at the high school. The second drill hits some glitches. Kids in the cafeteria aren't doing exactly what they're supposed to. How's it going so far? Um, you know, some concerns that we can see a lot of the people in this room. 
um, and the doors aren't locked. Principal Donna Formica is angry. After the drill, Showcrowd tells the principal that too many of the staff members don't know what's going on. Um, but staff have to be a part. You got your IT people, like they are part of the school, so they yeah, have to you be know part what? of that. that. That was my fault. No, 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 that's because okay. when I put the announcement out, I didn't include IT. I didn't. I didn't. says every drill is a learning experience, and she'll add her data from today to the collection she's built over the last six months. We have statistics on every school building um, in terms of what percentage of rooms were locked down properly, what percentage had their doors locked or their lights off. Her theory is that lockdowns can slow down a gunman. If lights go out and doors are locked, the perpetrator will have fewer opportunities to do damage before police arrive. Of course, there are lots of intangibles here. How do you really know for sure anything works unless something really bad happens? Tom Ristoff works closely with Shellcrout. He's the Syracuse district's head of safety, and he knows an actual attack would be chaotic. As long as folks are confident and they know what to do and they've been through a drill before, they will revert back to that muscle memory. This is what I did last time. This is what I'm going to do. And by doing more and more drills, they will feel more confident and then we hope, subsequently respond more appropriately. And that's what Schildkraut hopes, too. She's repeating the drills again and again through the school year. And she's also surveyed more than 10,000 middle and high schoolers in the district, asking questions on how safe and prepared they felt. Eventually, she'll submit her work to peer-reviewed journals, and then it would be available to any school district that wants it in the country, one's trying to make the tough decision about how to keep kids safe. Being a student in America today is far different than it was before Columbine. And while mass shootings in schools are rare, they happen enough that going to school can be scarier now. Showcrowd understands that problem, but she also sees a solution. And while I may only be one person, I really believe that I can make a difference. And whether it's Syracuse or it's the entire United States, like I believe that we can help keep kids safer. It hurts her to think about the 17 people in Parkland who didn't go home to their families. And if it takes tough love or it takes teaching moments or it takes coming down on their administrators or whatever needs to be done, like they have to understand the seriousness of this. That not one more really means not more. And maybe that doesn't mean not one more to everybody, but it does to me. You do take this very personally. It's devastation I wouldn't wish on anybody. Schildkraut says the kids who go through these drills probably won't ever be in a school shooting. But they could be caught up in gang violence or some other more common danger. It's not just schools that have changed since Columbine, she says. It's the whole world. And that doesn't mean kids and parents should be afraid. She says it means they should be prepared. CPR's Nathaniel Miner and Andrea Dukakis with our series and podcast Since Columbine, available now. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. John Hickenlooper stood in Civic Center Park in Denver just about a month ago and confirmed what we'd suspected for months. It's time to bring all Americans together. And that is why I'm running for president of the United States. 
Since then, he has tried to break away from a group of 17 announced candidates and another half dozen or so still considering a run at the 2020 Democratic nomination. Hickenlooper spent the weekend in Alabama and South Carolina. CPR's Anthony Cotton followed him there and asked about life on the campaign trail. It's invigorating. You have to maintain your focus for long periods of a day. And I was out of town for 20 out of 22 days. I worked 14 hours pretty much every day of those 20 days. Uh, And the two days I was in Denver, I, (laughs) I probably worked longer hours. There, there is such a steep learning curve, both in terms of understanding at a, at a deeper level when you begin to translate policy from Colorado scale to a national scale, what that looks like and feels like, but also the, uh, the meeting different people from all kinds of different backgrounds at, at you know, a very high level of achievement. It is exhilarating and invigorating and ultimately exhausting. You mentioned at one point over the weekend the polling. You know, you're around 1%. But you said you had a funny feeling about it, that, like, denying the numbers almost. Well, certainly I haven't been awash in free media, right? I mean, when you have... Bernie Sanders and and Beto O'Rourke and people that raised millions, tens of millions of dollars when you put them together uh, in small donors, people, you know, that are really swept up in their celebrity. You know, that means you're going to start out pretty slow. But I do feel everywhere I've gone in Iowa, when I've been here in, uh, in South Carolina, I went down to Beaufort County and we had, I don't know, almost 100 people there. And a pretty positive reception, right? Everything I said, loud ovation when I uh, spoke to Democrats in in Montgomery yesterday. Standing ovation, very warm reception. And that's what makes me think, if if I'm getting that kind of reception from highly probable primary voters, then it's just a question of time. If I've just got to find a way to get onto Facebook or onto social media and find that, that moment that allows me to capture some some bandwidth. Democrats will hold a two-night debate in late June, featuring as many as 20 candidates. The hopefuls have two ways to qualify, either through donations or polling. The party says if more than 20 candidates reach either benchmark, it may winnow down the field by making them reach both figures. Hickenlooper has qualified for the debate via polling, but is short of the 65,000 donations necessary to qualify that way. I asked him if he was concerned. Well, we'll see. I mean, I don't think anybody knows. We're running a good campaign. You know, I think we'll have lots of donors, and I think we'll have, uh, you know, we're going to have 65,000 donors. Ah, That that seems like a bit of a stretch right now, but you don't know, right? Sometimes that that wind fills your sails from directions you you never anticipated. Last month, Hickenlooper wrote an editorial in the Washington Post taking exception to the Green New Deal, saying a better approach is needed to fight climate change. This is part of an exchange he had on the topic Friday in a meeting with Alabama Democrats. Well, do you think the, the batteries in electric vehicles are going to come from a nonprofit? Of course, we're going we're gonna to have to partner. If we're going to do it, we've got to partner with business. That's how things happen at scale. I'm not sure we need any oil and gas in that effort. Right? They're still going to be doing their business, but we're going to be taking market share away from them every single week. 
Okay, so is there a specific version of the Green New Deal that you support? But the Green New Deal isn't a bill. What version? The Green New Deal is... I, I, I support the urgency to transition away from uh, uh, an economy that relies on pollution-creating hydrocarbons to an economy that is driven by energy that is clean. And there's a dozen different things out there that are, are trying to be brought to market in all different ways. I support whatever works. I'm a pragmatist. Right? Some of it's going to be non-profit, some of it's going to be for profit, but it is going to be whatever gets us to a clean energy universe as fast as humanly possible. Was that your competitiveness or...? Well, I think it's to win them over. I think I'm right. I mean, I, I agree to the urgency of, of climate change and the, the necessity that we have to respond more rapidly to having less climate-changing pollutants added to the atmosphere. I just we can't do it soon enough, but I don't think you can do it without the the participation of of utility companies and you know manufacturing companies that make batteries for solar cars. I mean, we can't do this in a vacuum without private enterprise being a partner in the solution. Oil and gas doesn't necessarily have to be part of the solution. People are driving their cars; they're going to keep driving their cars until someone puts something in front of them that is clean. Between the editorial in the Post, the town hall, the idea of working with Mitch McConnell, I mean, you, <laughs> you've put yourself out there, but it hasn't always been positive. Yeah, of course. But that's, I mean, that's, it's been that way every campaign I've ever done, right? If, if you're not designing your campaign to be molded to what the ex the existing orthodoxy is then you're going to get you're going to take some shots presidential candidate John Hickenlooper is speaking with CPR's Anthony Cotton about Hickenlooper's campaign for the 2020 Democratic nomination he is pointed about his frustration with the current commander in chief Anthony Cotton asked him about that given Hickenlooper's distaste for negative campaigning he's not in the primary <laughs> Um, I, I don't ever attack his character. What I do is describe what he's doing to the country. And I don't think those, the, those aren't attack ads and they're not, I'm laying out facts, right? It's, it would be nice if someone were in the Oval Office who knew science. It would, <laughs> it would, it would be nice if President Trump would come to Montgomery and tour the memorial. Yeah, but those aren't attack ads, right? Th those are, those are legitimate points of, of contention that, you know, I wish, and I think there are a lot of people in this country who, who wish that he would be more restrained as a, as a president and not trying to, uh, not trying to divide us. I, I, maybe I'm wrong, but I legitimately think his intention frequently is to get people riled up and to divide them so that he's, you know, that, that, that he escapes scrutiny. CPR's Anthony Cotton on the campaign trail with John Hickenlooper. The first Democratic primary debate, by the way, is in June. When Governor Jared Polis signs new oil and gas legislation, it won't mean the debate over local control is over. The fight reached a boiling point in the midterms, prompting state lawmakers to take action. Today, Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News, explores how Colorado got to this point, 
where things stand now and what to watch for next. Here's Purplish host Sam Brash. All right, so one morning last month, I was sitting at my desk at the Colorado Capitol. You should know that the press room has a speaker that lets us listen in on the House and the Senate. And there was this moment where things got really weird. Because what I heard through that speaker wasn't a human voice. It was this. Some kind of freaky robot choir. It was coming from the state senate. I went down to the chamber where I found this guy. John Cook, state senator, District 13. And a Republican, which means he's in the minority. He caught me up on the morning, how he'd grown frustrated with Democrats, and how quickly they'd been pushing their agenda. Basically, the response is, well, because we can, we're in the majority, tough. So Cook pulled really the only move he had. He demanded the longest bill he could find be read out loud at length. Think of this as filibuster by clerk. The reading goes on until the bill is done, or the person who asked for it says stop. It's a little over 2,000 pages. 2,000? Yeah, 2,023, I think is the exact number. Long enough to shut down the state Senate for days. That's when Democrats countered and had a computer speed read the bill instead. Actually, five computers. Courts later ruled the machine reading unconstitutional, but by that time, it was too late. The bill that Cook was most worried about, the thing that pushed him to make such an extraordinary move, had made it through the state Senate. It's a bill about how oil and gas is regulated in Colorado. The legislation makes public health and safety the top priority, and our focus for this episode It gives local governments more power over the industry, something activists and some politicians have wanted for years. Right now, as a municipality, we have no regulatory authority to say no. If it's a safety issue that affects your backyard, that should be a city issue. Communities are tired of not feeling safe in their homes, not having a role in the permitting that's going on in their backyards. In trying to meet that demand, Democrats have brought on a massive backlash. Thousands of oil and gas workers rallied in opposition outside the Capitol. I want to hear who is proud to work in oil and gas. There have been hearings full of emotional testimony stretching until 1, 2 in the morning. Colorado's natural gas industry is the lifeblood of our state. The energy industry provides revenue for our local schools, our police, our firefighters. They're part of the fabric of our community. All this over what's essentially a fight between neighbors. In the last few decades, suburbs have expanded, moving people closer and closer to oil and gas drilling. And at the same time, a fracking boom on the front range has moved the industry closer and closer to people. This episode of Purplish, a look back at this battle over your backyard. To really understand it, you got to start with the first city that tried to banish the industry, why it failed, and how that set a standard for the state about who decides what happens down the street, one that's set to change dramatically. Okay, so like a lot of good stories, this one begins with a bang. It 
happened on a cold night in February, 35 years ago, in LaSalle, Colorado. It's a tiny town 50 miles north of Denver, right next door to Greeley. Police Chief Carl Harvey was on duty that night. Yeah, it was the graveyard shift that night. Um, it was about a little after 12.30. I had come around on the traffic light and parked in the east parking lot of Wicks Lumber. Wicks was a typical lumber showroom, beams, two-by-fours, and one of the biggest businesses in town. That night, Chief Harvey checked on the property, then turned back onto the highway. And just as I paralleled uh, Wicks' lumber, it blew up. Whoa. (laughs) So did you see it? Did you hear it? What happened? I actually saw it and heard it, yes. Yeah, the roof, the roof line actually came straight up and then straight down. And I've lost hearing in this left ear because of it. No one was killed or injured, but the explosion blew out storefront windows and shook the town awake. Firefighters battled the blaze until dawn. And the cause? Obviously, we thought it was a gas leak. That's because about a week earlier, natural gas had seeped into a hidden old water well and blown a hole in the Wicks parking lot. Chief Harvey says that freaked everybody out. Because we used to be on well water, and almost every uh, old building had a well of some sort. Wells that now could be sleeping time bombs waiting to explode. The LaSalle experience, I mean, that was dramatic. This is Ken Crum. At the time, he lived in Greeley, which is right next door to LaSalle. And you know it wasn't just the lumber yard. That was what was creepy. It came up at a lot of buildings in the area. And businesses had to be shut down and evacuated because they found more gas. Gas in basements, gas and water bubbling up through parking lots. Residents of the area literally couldn't trust the ground beneath their feet. LaSalle even started busing its students to other districts. Officials suspected the cause might be fracking, part of the drilling process that uses pressurized liquid to crack shale rock and release the oil and gas inside. The worry was that process was also pushing gas into those abandoned water wells. That was never confirmed as the cause of the explosion at the Wicks Lumberyard, but Crum says the fear was real. You know, most people, it just shook them and kind of said, hey, you know, what in the world is going on and what can we do about it? This is a moment that's been repeated a lot in more recent fracking fights. Something dramatic happens, an explosion, a leak, a massive drill rig next to a school, and it scares people, enough that they organize and demand action. That's what Ken Crum decided to do more than three decades ago. He was a fractivist before fractivists were a thing. I had no idea what the repercussions would be. I had no idea of the size or the power of the oil and gas lobbies. I had no idea about any of that and really didn't care. I just saw the the incidences and I saw a possible solution. And so I just did it. That solution? A complete and total ban on oil and gas development inside Greeley. And it's worth pausing here for a second on Ken, because if you're imagining some diehard environmentalist, that's not him. See, at that time, there was, I'm sure 35 years ago, what's known today as an environmental movement. But there was no movement significant enough that little old me really knew anything about 
Nah, little old Ken here was just a landscaper. So lawnmowers, etc. you know. Who had followed his wife from New York City to Greeley. And Ken says what motivated him was... Well, just safety of my neighbors, safety of my children. I like the community and I just didn't think we should, you know, be having people at risk. So Ken initiated a petition to put his plan on the city ballot. And in 1985... The vote came out positive for banning oil and gas. Not just that, it won by a two-to-one margin. And take that in for just a second. Greeley was the first city in the state to ban drilling. Ken thinks it was maybe even first in the country. Not Austin or Los Angeles or Boulder. Greeley. A city that's since become a hub of Colorado's recent oil and gas boom. And Ken says this taught him something about small-town government. At its best, it offered someone like him, someone without a college education, the chance to change his small part of the world. You know, the little community I lived in had been promised a park for a long time. I said, well, neighbors, all we have to do is put in a petition to the city, and if enough of us sign it and get it into the city, we'll probably see activity on our park. You know, and so I became what's known as an activist, and was probably pretty effective at it. So effective that Ken actually managed to get himself elected to a seat on Greeley City Council. But while his own political star was rising, his drilling ban quickly ran into trouble. Once the referendum passed, there was little choice but to pursue litigation. This is another Ken. Ken Lind. I'm an attorney, obviously licensed in the state of Colorado. And back in the 80s, Ken had a couple of clients. It was two brothers. The Lundvall brothers. Both of which have have passed. And they were old-time Colorado types. I mean, cowboy hat wearing, cowboy boots, um, true gentlemen of the West. And these brothers owned mineral rights inside of Greeley. They'd even been issued permits by the city to drill four wells in a residential area. After voters passed Ken Crum's ban, they had to scrap those plans. It's a significant loss because they had entered into contracts for drilling. They had paid for the leases. So yes, it was uh, a major blow to their operations. So this Ken, he sued the city on their behalf. And he was pretty confident he'd win because there's this law, the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Act, which says the industry would be regulated by the state. All you had to do was look at the state statute. In our opinion, it was, it's very simple, folks. Here's what the courts have ruled. Here's what the statute is. There's no case here. Colorado lawmakers wrote this bill in the 1950s. Oil is on the move in a growing progressive American industry, which began with a single well drilled by Colonel... It was a post-war moment when oil and gas development was seen as vital to the future of the state and the country. The Denver-Jewelsburg Basin had been opened. That's why lawmakers created a state commission to regulate oil and gas, and why they told those regulators their job was to help foster and develop the industry. Oil is under our lands, our seas, and oil is in the Rockies. Ken Lind, the attorney Ken, thought the law pretty clearly prevented local governments like Greeley from impeding the efficient production of oil and gas. And in 1992, he was proven right. The state Supreme Court considered his case and ruled... The 
drilling ban is invalid, period. The Oil and Gas Commission controls. End of case. The decision set down a clear precedent for self-governing cities in Colorado. It said communities could manage the impacts of oil and gas development in their boundaries. They just couldn't block someone's access to their mineral rights or exceed state authority. And this has come up again and again and again in recent years. It's why courts have slapped down more recent drilling limits. Local bans and moratoriums on fracking are illegal. This is the ruling from the Colorado Supreme Court. It states that bans on fracking, such as that in Longmont, and moratoriums on the industry, like that in Fort Collins, are unconstitutional. And it's given the state legal ammunition to sue other places trying to keep oil and gas out. Today, the state attorney general filed a lawsuit against the Boldy County Commissioner alleging that their moratorium goes against a recent Supreme Court ruling. But all that started to change in 2013, when one person found drilling outside his front door. A guy whose name I bet you know. Just without any warning, last week we got word that there's fracking going on, like right near my driveway. Okay, so back in 2013, an Australian company called Sundance Energy started work on a fracking site in Weld County. Now, normally, this would not be news. But this particular site, it was across the street from a country home, a home that just so happened to belong to one rather wealthy Democratic congressman. When I last left, everything was fine. This is where uh, my partner's dad and sister live. We were planning on coming up here. This, of course, is Jared Polis. He filmed the moment he first saw the operation and put it online. That is, that's the oil rig, or that's the drilling rig right there. This is like, um, basically, we're living in an oil, oil zone now. Polis shows up to his house. It's a white two-story home next to a pond. And now, towering over it is a massive red, white, and blue drilling rig. I mean, just comically huge. They're building it. Uh, By the time we can even figure out if there's any evidence that they're violating any of the laws, they'll have drilled their well. It's a done deal. I mean, the property, it's done. It's, 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 It's over. You know, this part of our Colorado dream is over. Polis stands there, crestfallen, and watches as workers line the site with a fabric sound barrier. And right here, this is when he makes it clear that this is about to get a lot bigger than just one drilling rig. Uh, For better or for worse, you know, I think that uh, the universe here has conspired to help make me a poster boy for the face of fracking. And I'll use the increased visibility to help pass sensible regulations. Um, I always have talked about these issues in And with that, Polis and his millions joined a growing tug-of-war over fracking on the Front Range. He backed a pair of ballot initiatives that would have overturned the precedent set down in Greeley and let local communities lock the industry out. It's like any other kind of industrial operation. I think it's uh, up to communities to decide if they want to incorporate that into their economic development strategy or not. But just as it looked like the 2014 election was going to be a giant referendum on oil and gas development... Polis blinked. A major compromise on fracking that could avoid a nasty legal fight in November. Governor John Hickenlooper cutting a deal with Boulder Congressman Jared Polis. This is the way that we do things in Colorado. You have all the interests at the table. You work through the the differences and difficulties, and you figure out what what is a compromise that that serves all parties. Obviously, this will be disappointing to some of my uh, constituents, Republican and Democratic, but I would point out to them that there's been progress made. 
So Polis agreed to pull the ballot initiatives in exchange for a state-level panel to examine potential oil and gas reforms. And Polis was right. That did not sit well with activists who wanted more checks on the industry. But the anti-fracking crowd attacked Polis for caving to political pressures. If you could sum it up, sum yeah, up your feelings. Uh, betrayal. Now, that was not the last time Polis broke with the grassroots. He also opposed Prop 112 last year. That was the failed effort to expand the mandatory setbacks around new wells. But fast forward to this spring, and Congressman Polis has a new job. And he has not forgotten about this issue. And with that said, I'd like to introduce the governor, Jared Polis. Last month, Polis joined Democratic leaders to announce the legislation we mentioned at the top of the show. There's not a one-size-fits-all approach to how we view integrating oil and gas development into different communities. Yet under current law, communities are hamstrung in creating rules that work for their local residents. This has long been a theme for Polis. He's not a fan of stricter statewide regulations. Instead, Polis says local governments should have more power over the industry. And like a lot of people at the Capitol, he boils that down to just two words. In this area, I said I would put health and safety first and support local control. Yes, we're proposing it move to local control. And of course, I'm very supportive of local control in all things, as you know. Local control. It's the idea that local governments should decide where and how something happens inside their boundaries. And just like states' rights, local control is a term politicians love to throw around. You know, everyone supports states' rights until they don't. Everyone supports local control until they don't. I think people use it as a talking point for whatever issue of the day is going on. This is Democratic State Senator Steve Fenberg. He's one of the authors of this bill, and he argues that in this case, local control isn't about messaging. No, the conflict exists because communities don't feel like the state was doing enough, and those communities are the ones that are begging for more authority. Adams County is asking for it. Broomfield, Superior, yes, Boulder County, but also other places. Okay, here's where we actually have to get into the nitty-gritty and explain this bill. So... This legislation does shift power over the industry from the state to local governments. And it does that by clarifying that cities and counties get to say exactly where drilling happens. Because right now, we are seeing that some operators are putting these industrial activities right next to playgrounds, right down the street from where people live. The legislation also says that state regulators will no longer be working to foster responsible oil and gas development. Instead, their job will be to regulate the industry to protect health and safety. And if local governments feel they aren't doing a good enough job at that, those governments can set even stricter rules. We've always said the the reforms we want to make is create a floor at the state level, not a ceiling. That's the pitch, right? You know, the authors of this bill have marketed it as let local communities make local decisions. The reality is something quite different. This is Ben Martyr, a spokesman for the American Petroleum Institute. Martyr knows local control sounds good in theory, but he says it could make it impossible for his industry to work in Colorado. Creating a patchwork of different regulations in the state isn't good for anybody. We could have a situation where... Every single county has different regulations, different local laws, and the laws could be changing from stoplight to stoplight. Martyr says that's just uncalled for and could lead to big problems. 
maybe the right to say, I want my county commissioners doing this, is outweighed by the hit to Colorado's revenue and you know what happens to school districts that depend on this on this revenue source. Now, it's hard to know exactly how this bill will play out on the ground. To be clear, it does not allow local governments to ban oil and gas development outright. But we don't know what rules they'll try to pass and how far the courts will allow them to go. But here's one thing we do know. This legislation marks a huge change from that decision in Greeley, which upheld that oil and gas development is so important, so technical, that cities and counties can't really get in its way. And there's one person who thinks this change is the wrong call, one person I did not expect. I really feel we need the oil and gas industry in Colorado. You know, not only the energy it produces, but the jobs and the economy. This is Ken Crum, the guy who passed Greeley's drilling ban all those years ago. A lot has changed since then. He's moved out of the city, and now he goes by his given first name, Lloyd. I just decided it was time for me to move on and, you know, and create a new few years for my life, a few decades. Today, Lloyd Crum develops subdivisions. He lives in one of them, in Fort Collins, atop a hill he built for his own home. He says the work has helped change his perspective on drilling bans, including the one he passed more than 30 years ago. I felt satisfied at the end of the day, many years later, that, in fact, the judge came down with the correct ruling. The real issue in court was uh, the taking of people's property rights. And you had never heard of that before? No, no, I, I didn't really know what it was. I mean... At that point, I think I had purchased my first house, and that's all I knew about property was my house and my lot. I didn't know the much bigger, bigger picture about property. Crum says he knows now that property isn't just about owning land. It's about owning what lies underneath it. Oil and gas, mineral rights that people are counting on for their salaries and retirements and profits. The country was founded on people's yearning to own property rather than just the government and great landlords in Europe. I mean, just a handful of people were allowed to own property. It's a sacred right to us to own property, and we shouldn't give it up easy. And this is the next frontier for this fight. The legislature has approved the bill with some concessions to the industry. Governor Polis is expected to sign it. And once he does, cities and counties can start enacting stricter regulations. You can bet that some of those will end up in court, which means that none of this is over. It's just one more step in a decades-long battle between people worried about safety and people worried about property. And with a growing population, a warming climate, and an industry counting on wealth stored in the ground, this state is a long way from an answer. Sam Brash and Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News. You can subscribe to Purplish wherever you get your podcasts. And finally today, some exciting news to share. CPR has received $1.21 million to increase its environmental reporting and create a climate solutions hub. The grant comes from the Jacques M. Littlefield Foundation. And this climate team will include an editor and three reporters. Expect in-depth radio reports and interviews, rich digital storytelling, and podcasts. This is CPR News.